0: You're listening to the briefing first broadcast on the twenty-seventh of February, twenty twenty-four, on Monaco Radio. Hello and welcome to the briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermack coming up on today's program. My national security
1: advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire.
0: Joe Biden claims a ceasefire will be in place in a matter of days for Gaza. But would a temporary cessation of hostilities even mean anything? After that, we'll be looking at the deepening rift between Polish farmers and Ukraine. And we'll look at Bosnia's hopes of joining the European Union.
2: It's still frustrating waiting for more than 20 years to start with negotiations regarding uh, EU membership. It's not easy at all.
0: We'll also have the latest business news and a roundup of what's making the headlines in Southeast Asia. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Cermak. If there is a reason that the United States was the only country to veto a Gaza ceasefire resolution in the United Nations Security Council last week, it's because Washington had insisted it would disrupt negotiations that were aimed at achieving exactly this. Now, U.S. President Joe Biden has said he's confident a ceasefire deal will be in place by the end of this week, in time for Ramadan. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Salem Vakil, director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Salam, first of all, just this discussion of only a temporary ceasefire over Ramadan, that's, that's what this is about, correct? Israel is essentially vowing that they would still finish the job.
3: Uh, Yes, uh, in theory, uh, this is being called a temporary ceasefire because um, there hasn't been able to be a broader, longer agreement. Um, And I think that the hope is that the temporary can be made more permanent once there is momentum um, after the hostages, the Israeli hostages are released and the Palestinian prisoners are released and aid is delivered. Um, They're supposed to be reportedly at 500 trucks a day delivered to Gaza. But um, there's no guarantee, of course, that um, we will get there. I think that um, there's also deep fear that violence could escalate over the month of Ramadan. Uh, The Biden administration really wants to contain what could become a broader regional conflict or uh, see violence spread to East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Uh, So this is what's driving uh, these current negotiations.
0: And what is your sense of the biggest sticking points at the moment, even for a temporary ceasefire to come into effect?
3: Well, I think uh, both sides are, are just trying to finagle as much as they can out of this temporary um, ceasefire, perhaps um, looking for um, avenues to extend the deal to prevent, um, what the Israelis would like to go ahead with, um, a ground invasion of Rafa. Um, and so as part of the negotiation, uh, there is a suggestion that displaced Palestinians that have moved South, um, to, uh, Rafa, um, as a result of the bombing of the North will be, uh, permitted to go back. I'm not sure what they're going to go back to because the whole area of course has practically been leveled, um. But uh, I think, uh, you know, that is certainly on the the cards and in the table. There are also negotiations about um, a second phase uh, with regards to um, management and security of of Gaza, thinking about uh, rehabilitating Palestinian institutions. Uh, Yesterday, the Palestinian prime minister has put forward his resignation, and this is part of a broader package and um discussions where the international community and the US is is looking to support a transition of Palestinian leadership as well.
0: well. Well and as you kind of list all of those topics there some are looking further forward than others and you did touch on this at the top but i just wonder what your senses of whether a temporary ceasefire that would be focused on the hostages getting aid back into gaza maybe finding some kind of solution for Rafa. I mean, would all of that in your mind kind of create the space and time for a permanent ceasefire? Or is that wishful thinking?
3: Well, this is really about um, Israel um, and the international negotiators, which include Qatar, Egypt, but more broadly, um, other Arab states, uh, finding um, an arrangement to deal with Hamas leadership that 144 days on um, in this war hasn't been fully decapitated um, and Israel's uh, proposals for the management and security of Gaza are very far off from those being proposed by Arab states um, and the United States. Um, the Arab states very much want to see uh, a path that would lead to um, irrevocable Palestinian statehood in the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem, whereas Netanyahu's proposals um, don't look to uh, recognizing Palestine. There's been a bill through the Israeli Knesset um, obstructing that process. um, And uh, Israel wants to keep uh, Gaza quite separate and manage the security of Gaza um, on its own.
0: Well, you, you did touch on the mediators there, and I was curious if you could talk a little more about that. Qatar, Egypt, the U.S., I mean, is there any sense that these three countries, what has their role been, I suppose, and could they force some kind of resolution to this, or at the end of the day, is it up to still Israel and Hamas, for that matter, being able to agree to something for both, you know, that, that somewhat works for both sides?
3: Certainly, um, israeli leadership and hamas are the key decision makers at this point but um They both have vulnerabilities that we have to bear in mind. Netanyahu is under increasing pressure and he's trying to rehabilitate himself after probably one of the uh, gravest security crises in Israel's history. Um, And Hamas, of course, uh, um, behind the horrible October 7th attacks, is responsible also (laughs) um, for uh, the destruction um, of Gaza, um, the loss of life and, and certainly Um, Palestinians um, have not had a chance to express their views at the ballot box uh, in Palestine um, for decades now. So that in itself is a is a challenge going forward Um, beyond uh, these two actors. Qatar has played a a very important role in in trying to shepherd the negotiations um, from um, their contacts with Hamas in uh, Doha, but also more broadly. They've been very important, as has Egypt, which has security concerns sharing a border um, with Gaza and having worked with Israel uh, for many decades uh, to manage security um, for Palestinians there, and Egypt has been under significant pressure, as well has been pressuring Israel to prevent the further displacement of Palestinians in Gaza um, into Egypt. So um, there are a lot of dimensions here. I think the principal and key player, though, is the United States that has given uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's government a very long leash in. Um, executing this war, uh, but, uh, time and patience, I think, is coming to an end with the U.S. beginning to circulate a resolution at the UN Security Council, um, about uh, a temporary ceasefire as well. Um, and President Biden has worked hard to support Israel categorically while uh, trying to prevent the conflict from escalating and becoming a regional war. Uh, But this is an election year in the United States and and President Biden does have to at the same time um, address U.S. domestic concerns. So there are many moving parts, but without U.S. pressure on Israel, uh, this ceasefire really uh, can't uh, be delivered.
0: Just quickly, finally, on that, when you talk about Biden there, what did you then make of his intervention kind of predicting that the ceasefire would come at the end of this week? Is that helpful? Is that a sign of kind of desperation on his part?
3: Well, I think um, his intervention um, and and one being relatively positive signals uh, that a ceasefire is certainly in the works. I'm not sure if it will be delivered by the weekend. The aim is to have that ceasefire before Ramadan. I think the optics of him eating an ice cream and talking about the Gaza war, um, unfortunately, are a bit ill placed. And it shows um, that the president still isn't understanding um, the uh, gravity of this war uh, in in the Middle East. And for Middle Easterners, 450 million people have been really enraged by what they see as Western imbalance uh, towards the loss of Palestinian life. And um, you know, I think this could pose uh, challenges for the president in a very critical election year where uh, U.S. constituents of Middle Eastern and Muslim origin um, could take their anger out at the ballot box. Um, so getting to an end of, of this war um, or even a temporary ceasefire, if that's what we're going to call it, um, is important for all of the actors, but above all for Palestinians.
0: Thanks very much, Sanam. That was Sanam Vakil. Now, here's Sophie Monahan coombs with today's other news headlines.
4: Thanks, Chris. Sweden, the Czech Republic and Poland have said they are not considering sending troops to Ukraine after French President Emmanuel Macron refused to rule out the measure. Speaking at a European leaders' conference in Paris, Macron argued that helping Kiev to defeat Russia was necessary for Europe's collective security. A report into management systems at Boeing has raised serious concerns about the aircraft manufacturer. The review by the U.S. aviation regulator found what it described as a disconnect between senior management and regular staff, plus inadequate and confusing safety processes. Tokyo has said it will take unprecedented steps to tackle Japan's low birth rate, which fell for an eighth consecutive year in 2023. New government data shows the number of marriages also continued to fall, dipping below 500,000 for the first time in nearly a century. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris.
0: Thanks very much, Sophie. Now, as farmers protest across Europe, one of their key issues has been about goods entering Ukraine, or entering from Ukraine, rather. This is no more true than for Poland, where farmers have blocked trucks from Ukraine entering their country – and the whole crisis has built up tensions between the two neighbors, who really should be allies in the war against Russia. Well, Jaroslav Koish is the editor-in-chief of Kultura Liberalna magazine and an assistant professor at the University of Warsaw. He joins me now. Jaroslav, before we get to the farmers, I just wondered how was the Ukraine two-year war anniversary, the anniversary of the invasion by Russia, how was that marked in Poland over the weekend?
5: Well, it's uh, on the surface, it is as it used to be, uh, which means that there is a strong support from uh, the new uh, liberal pro European government. Uh, towards Ukraine, there is virtually no change. But this is this should be one should not uh, really overlook the fact that there are some processes that are uh, going behind the surface, uh, which means that there is a kind of a the the ill what I would call the illusion of a prolonged war, uh, the illusion that in fact uh, Ukraine is staying as a, as, a, as a military power that is able to, to uh, mm, uh, oppose against Russia as long as possible. And in fact, people tend to have uh, a, a kind of uh, a reckless attitude towards uh, uh, support to Ukraine, because it they, they tend to believe, and I underline, it's an illusion, uh, they tend to believe that uh, Russia has been stopped.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Well, I mean, what is the situation then at the border at the moment, if you could tell us, I've I've been through this border into Ukraine. It's such a key conduit really for everything into and out of Ukraine.
5: It is strictly combined to the to the to the, to the, to the my, my previous previous remark because uh, in fact people over time people started to discover that there is a, a the the difference of interest between Poland and Ukraine and uh, uh, what we see at the at the border is uh, the. Uh, Tangible, very tangible uh, picture of of that uh, of, the, of the fact that people uh, reacted at the beginning automatically with a kind of solidarity, but after two years they started to discover: okay, but there is also a difference of interest, and then they discovered that in fact uh, there is a kind of regional competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is possible. And by the way, it is not only uh, something that was in political minds in Poland. Mykhailo Podoliak, an advisor to Mr. Zelensky, said once in his interview that Poland and Ukraine would be in competition with each other in numerous spheres after the war. So it means that to some extent it is understandable, but at the same time it is so reckless because uh, it's all everything is built on this illusion of prolonged war.
0: Well, and I mean, the farmers' disagreements and what you allude to there between the competition between Poland and Ukraine, it is about sort of waves of grain entering the European Union from Ukraine. Ukraine, though, at the same time, I just wonder, they claim that this grain isn't even necessarily staying in Poland. It's, for example, in sealed rail cars. So I wonder what your perspective is on that. What are kind of the farmers' demands... Are they realistic in terms of what they're doing holding up traffic
5: at the border? Well, the point is that it's the, 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 in practice this subject is extremely uh, complex because obviously at least part of uh, grains are going outside Poland, but not all of them. And therefore uh, there is a kind of suspicion among farmers that, well, eventually perhaps the majority of grains will stay in Poland. The, the, the whole point is that I think that one should really uh, focus on the fact that there are Two different readings of this situation, and it's a kind of pan-European tragedy because, on our side of this of of this of this dispute, we are looking at grains that and economic interests that are different, but at the same time. On the the Ukrainian side, we see that the interpretation is absolutely different and it should be taken into consideration that every grain is marked with Ukrainian blood. And really, it should be taken into consideration that we have two different narratives and there is a kind of tragedy, uh, tragedy not to talk about them at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean... Given those different narratives, I wonder also what Donald Tusk's role has been in this, the new Polish government. Has he managed to change the dynamics here at at all? He has sort of sought to repair relations with Ukraine compared to the previous government. Is he caught sort of between the two here when it comes to trying to find a resolution that satisfies both Poland's narrative, the farmer's narrative, and Ukraine's?
5: Well, in Poland, the protests started under the previous populist government. So one should bear it in mind. Under the the new Donald Tusk government, the protest is only continuing. And the point is that Donald Tusk uh, has to think politically about it. And uh, what it means? It means that this year in Poland, uh, Poland will hold Uh, local elections and elections to the European Parliament. And definitely, uh, Donald Tusk uh, has to bear it in mind. Uh, At the same time, the new government declares its support for Ukraine's military effort. That is obvious, but at the same time, it cannot simply ignore the interests of Polish farmers. I mean, uh, one lesson from national populism is not to confront your own sovereign, (laughs) at least not openly.
0: Yeah, so many European leaders trying to deal with this dynamic at the moment. Yaroslav Koish in Warsaw, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Now, speaking of the European Union, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has accelerated attempts to bring Kiev into the bloc but it has irked several countries in the Western Balkans who've been waiting to secure their place for more than two decades. The European Union agreed in 2003 that Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, North Macedonia, Kosovo, Montenegro, and Serbia could all become members once each of them met the bloc's criteria. Since then, though, accession talks have faced numerous setbacks, including bilateral disputes and changes to EU rules. Well, at last week's Munich Security Conference, Monaco's Andrew Muller caught up with Bosnia and Herzegovina's foreign minister, Elmedin Konakovic. Andrew began by asking about the years of delays to the country's EU accession.
2: It's frustrating, I can say. Of course, it's really a big problem for us. Of course, we are also aware of our responsibility. We know that previous governments, they didn't deliver enough from these 14 key priorities or some other responsibilities regarding path. And, but it's still frustrating, waiting for more than 20 years to start with negotiations regarding uh, EU membership. It's not easy at all. On the other side, for my country, that's still the only option we have. Let me explain in just a few arguments. We are exporting yearly more than 70% of our goods into European Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, 23% more to the region, to the countries that are uh, candidate status countries for EU. So that shows that 93% of our economy, of the export from our economy, goes to EU. That's the only way we can develop the economy and we can actually bring some foreign investments. So... It is frustrating, but it's still the only option. And hopefully, uh, hopefully the EU will show some leadership now, not only bureaucracy, to, um, and we will have the right decision in March 21st and 22nd. They will decide to open officially negotiations. And the most important thing, they will start to integrate the Bosnian market to, into the European single market, which actually creates a lot of opportunities for our economy.
1: Is there a risk, though, do you think, or perhaps a better question is, do you think the EU is fully uh, appreciative of the risk of leaving uh, Bosnia out of the EU? Do you think it makes the Balkans, which is still the Balkans, um, a more volatile place?
2: Yeah, excellent question. I I explained to all my colleagues from EU countries. I said, okay, it is the really important question is what will happen if BIH and other countries, if they go to EU, but even more important question is what will happen if they don't? Mm. So someone is, of course, it's a fact that big players are trying to control this part of the world already. Russia is putting a lot of influence their malign influence, which actually doesn't help to Bosnia-Herzegovina at all. And on the other side, China is doing their job with the projects and money offering for some other projects. And the uh, European Union, uh, I said that a few times. EU was sleeping in my country for decades. They woke up, unfortunately, because of Ukraine. And that's also important issue because now it's not the story anymore about only about bureaucracy or in- integration. It's a security, political decision, and then probably bureaucracy. So I hope they are all aware of the threatness actually we can all have if we don't go in, into eu i have to i have to say one really important thing we don't expect shortcuts we know the rules. We know we need to deliver but opening negotiations, I don't consider that uh, decision as a kind of bureaucracy or or that actually is political and security issue of, of the momentum of the threatness for all Europe and they should be aware of that. But if we don't go into EU, if we don't play European rules, then you can ask yourself and all of us, we can ask ourselves what will happen then. I think we can imagine that, that, that some other influence in the heart of Europe on the Schengen border with Croatia is more than dangerous
1: a relationship that is very much a concern of yours as foreign minister is is the one with Serbia and I I did see that you had a pop at President Alexander Vucic recently for referring to Republika Serbska institutions as if they were actually state institutions and I can understand well I can kind of understand why he would do that and I can kind of understand why uh, it causes people in the rest of Bosnia to bristle but do you get the impression that that relationship between Sarajevo and Belgrade is improving in the slightest or is it still pretty much what it has been since the mid-90s?
2: First of all, it's really not easy to sit at the same table and to have discussions about European future of Bosnia and Herzegovina with the people who are denying genocide, celebrating war crimes. We had a few cases a few months back like horrible Statements from representatives of Republika Srpska and Serbia. We had two students a few months ago celebrating war crimes in the Sarajevo University. They are excluded, and then only one day after, they had an offer from Serbian government, from Vulin directly. He was in power then. Uh, he he offered them full scholarship and he called them to continue their education in Belgrade. It it's a really it's a bad message from Serbia. On the other side, we have some serious statements from Mucic also, who actually says that he protects and and he appreciates territorial integrity, sovereignty. I, I just met him now in the uh, here in the Munich conference. Um, uh, we didn't improve our relations a lot in the last 12 months, but they are not worse than before. <laughs> we are also aware, both of us, all of us, actually, of this opportunity, of this European integration story, which is uh, our economy cannot survive without European Union. That, that's a fact. So, on the other side, we know, and I I told you already, it's really hard and it's difficult, but we know because of the future of this country, dialogue is something what we need to do every day. We are really trying to have and to create dialogue, but I did react it and I will react it every time when anyone, I don't care who who that is, attacks on the constitution of Bosnia and Herzegovina or on the institution of our country. So my job is to protect it, I will continue.
0: Elmerin Konakovic there, the Bosnia-Herzegovina foreign minister, speaking to Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. It is time to get the latest business news now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Ewan G20 finance ministers, we're starting with. They're due to, or they're meeting in Brazil this week and sounding pretty positive about the global economy.
6: Hello, Chris. Yeah, they say that the likelihood of a soft landing in the global economy has increased. Now, this is the draft of the communique uh, laid out before the arrival of the finance ministers in Sao Paulo tomorrow. The wording isn't final. And will be subject to intense negotiations the text broadly uh, signals positivity about the global economy of course when uh, interest rates are hiked rapidly as they have been around the world the 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 worry is that we get a hard landing but so far that doesn't seem to be uh, the case this time around particularly in the us where it doesn't look like we're even getting a soft landing people are talking about no landing at all the u.s economy is really uh, motoring along unemployment in the us is 3.7 percent that is pretty much exactly where it was when the federal reserve started increasing interest rates back in march 2022 so the u.s economy has been incredibly robust despite the high interest rates and although the european economies have been doing not as well as the us unemployment has mostly been kept under control as we've tried to bring inflation under control and that is one of the things which is flagged in the uh, in the draft wording and that is about the fight against inflation we had eight and a half percent inflation across the world in 2022 Last year, we got that down to below 7%. And the forecasts this year from the IMF are for less than 6%. It's actually come down much more quickly than that in many countries in the West. US inflation is pretty close to the Fed's 2% target, although we do expect that to uh, blip up a little bit later on this week. So it's going to be a a bumpy road down. But inflation is heading towards target across uh, much of the world. So it so far looks like we have escaped Uh, the worst pain of the hiking cycle but there will likely be some bumps along the way and as it comes as to when the Fed is going to cut well that is subject of a lot of speculation back in 1995 when we had a soft landing the Federal Reserve held for three meetings before they gingerly started reducing interest rates Uh, so that is a a tricky one to call and something that markets uh, understandably are very focused on.
0: Ewan, just to follow up on that very quickly, you, you mentioned unemployment, inflation in the right direction there, but certainly in Europe, there's been a lot of hang, hand-wringing about growth. Is that talked about in this in this communique, or is that something that only Europe is worried about right now?
6: Chris, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The global growth picture is pretty sluggish. Some economies, as I say, like the US, are doing very well, but particularly uh, across much of the Western world, uh, uh, including uh, Japan as well, uh, growth is really negligible at the moment europe is bumping along the bottom germany is in recession uh the us was in a recession uh, at the end of uh, sorry the uk was in a recession at the end of last year as well the, the latest data uh, from the uk is a little bit lesser, but le- it's a little little bit better but it does seem that europe has a, a growth problem and, and i think the debate is uh, whether this is a structural problem rather than a cyclical problem. Even in the good times, the European economy uh, does not grow very fast. And the politicians are really struggling to know what to do because uh, the, the levers of adding fiscal stimulus, well, those can't be pulled too much anyway because these economies are in huge amounts of debt, which we ran up uh, during uh, the pandemic, amongst other things. So there's little fiscal firepower uh, for boosting economies. So politicians, of course, talk about supply-side measures, uh, getting the underlying rate of growth, Uh, Up in the euro area, but that is tricky as well, and so politicians are rather at a loss how to get uh, these sluggish economies growing again. So that is very much uh, a focus in Europe.
0: You and just very quickly one other story, very intriguing: Bitcoin back in the news. It's on another run higher.
6: Yeah, days when we used to talk about this regularly, but Bitcoin has touched fifty-seven thousand dollars. Uh, for the first time now since late 2021 the price is up now by a third since the start of the year so stocks have had a very good run uh, over the last couple of months but nothing uh, like as much as bitcoin now a lot of it is being driven by that ruling from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission a couple of months ago, which allowed spot ETFs, exchange-traded funds, uh, they began trading in early January. That's really uh, legitimized cryptocurrencies. It's kind of brought them into the uh, mainstream of the financial system. Uh, and these other interesting... Uh, thing which is happening is uh, an upcoming reduction in Bitcoin's supply growth. It's something called the uh, the halving of Bitcoin, which means that the number of Bitcoins that you can mine uh, for any given amount of computer power uh, is going to halve in April. So that is going to uh, help to squeeze the supply of Bitcoin and other things being equal uh, should drive up the price. Just by will of, way of illustration, how much this has gone up since the uh, bear market of 2022. Remember, that there was a massive sell-off of, uh, of cryptocurrencies. Everybody decided they were uh, giving up on the whole thing and the price really crashed back in 2022 the total value of digital currencies back then felt 800 billion dollars and we're now back up to 2.2 trillion dollars so that is a sort of close to a close to a tripling uh, of the value of uh, all these uh, cryptocurrencies so how much further it has got to go that is something i'm not going to speculate on
0: <laughs> it is hard to predict the wild ride of bitcoin around the world you and thank you very much that was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And finally, on the briefing today, it is time for a roundup of news from Southeast Asia. I'm joined now by, I'm joined now by Aaron Cook, Jakarta-based journalist and author of a newsletter about Southeast Asia. Aaron, we're starting with Cambodia.
7: Yes, this weekend past, They've just had their Senate elections, which has seen uh, Prime Minister, or oh, former Prime Minister now, Hun Sen, kind of back in the hot seat. He passed on the, the prime ministership after 30 years to his son last year, um, and now he is technically about to become the president of the Senate, which puts him as the, the first in charge, if anything's to happen, to the king. So he's definitely uh, not relinquishing that power easily.
0: Well, and, and what is your sense of what, what might happen, what's, what he's kind of going to do as this, this second in power? It's quite a key role.
7: It is, very much so. It's also an interesting one, these Senate elections. It's not a direct vote for the people. So while uh, Hun Sen's Cambodian People's Party did fantastically last year through uh, voter intimidation and um, making opposition parties illegal, (laughs) this time around it was his own party voting to keep him in this position of power. Um, There's sort of a view that Hun Sen is happy to relinquish some of the power to sun Hun Manet but he still very much wants to stay in the mix of things. And we've seen that recently. He just popped over the border to visit Thailand to see Thaksin Shinawat, who's, of course, a giant of, of Southeast Asian politics. So he's very much staying in the, in the, in the mind in Cambodia.
0: Well, Erin, let's, let's move on to the, from that to a story we have been following here on Monocle Radio, and that's Myanmar with uh, conscription, forced conscription announced by the junta earlier this month. There's a number of young people just trying to flee.
7: A lot of young people. It's, it's a very, very scary thing to watch. We're seeing a situation that was already extraordinarily horrible becoming a nightmare for a lot of people. So the The military junta has been having trouble holding on to some of its soldiers. Um, A lot have been fleeing. They don't want to be a part of this. And then a lot are actually being killed or being seriously injured in clashes with the ethnic armed groups. Um, So the military seems like it feels like it's been forced to bring in this conscription um, for the first time in its history. But a lot of people do not want to be a part of this at all. So they're fleeing for the borders, they're fleeing for embassies in Yangon, fleeing for visas. And that itself's become violent. There's, We've seen two people die in stampedes out the front of the Thai embassy in Yangon. So it seems like a bad situation is becoming much, much worse very quickly.
0: Well, And how is, is Thailand managing this? This is one aspect that they're bracing for kind of thousands of people to try at least to head over their border.
7: Yes, Thailand's been very nervous about this whole situation since the start of the junta. Uh, Thailand has a huge, both legal and illegal, uh, population of Myanmar migrants, so They've been very, very involved in the whole um, peace process, if we can call it that. Um, But as soon as this was announced, Prime Minister Sreta Teveson said, you know, Thailand should expect to see a stampede of people trying to get across and we should monitor to make sure that there is no illegals. So he's very much focused on the idea of illegal workers and illegal people rather than Thailand being seen as, as a safe haven for Myanmar nationals who just don't want to be a part of of the junta
0: well and just finally Erin, to have a bit of a lighter end to our show today you wanted to talk about a story in Singapore the tourism industry is on the up uh, after the pandemic including perhaps not surprisingly because of a Taylor Swift tour
7: taylor swift i think is probably saving uh, economies across the planet at the moment so she's just just today flown into singapore after a couple of weeks in australia um you cannot get a flight into the city you cannot get a hotel she has saved <laughs> saved the city um and it comes off the back of very popular coldplay and ed sheeran shows which you know no accounting for taste but <laughs> it's been exciting. Singapore has been, hasn't really seen its um, tourism pop back the way we've seen in Thailand or Vietnam, for instance. So this could be the beginning. It's a lot of people coming from across Southeast Asia. Um, No one else is really playing shows in Bangkok or Manila or Jakarta, but Thailand, um, Singapore rather, is hosting Taylor Swift and they're ready to go.
0: Are they ready to go? I mean, what is the reaction for Singaporeans themselves with this sort of new influx? Are they excited? Hotels, the hospitality, everything. It must be a good moment for them.
7: Absolutely. Changi Airport, I think, uh, is very used to this protocol. There was nobody getting in the airport to see if they could catch her flying in. But um, looks like five-star hotels across the city have put extra security on. They haven't released where she's staying, um, so the city's really famous, like Marina Bay Sands, these type of hotels, all had extra security and a few fans milling around hoping to get a glimpse of her.
0: <laughs> all going to be doing various <laughs> spotting, I can imagine. Erin, thank you very much. That was Erin Cook in Jakarta, and that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It's produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Nioma Aque, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Termak. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Oh, <music> you.